I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks. We're about to jump on Zoom and talk to Eric Torgny, who is an archaeologist. I know. You might ask why, Mr. Binks. Well, the reason is Eric is passionate about pet cemeteries and about observing cemeteries over the years and how they reflect our relationships between dogs and their people and how dogs have migrated from being pets to being family members as represented on tombstones. Hi, Eric. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me. Not at all. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I have to say, you know, I was privy to your amazing talk for the Royal Parks recently. And, you know, I'm just so fascinated that you're an archaeologist. I'm really in your fascination for pet cemeteries and where it all began. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a funny enough question for me as well. I mean, I'm actually a, a zooarchaeologist, which means my specialty is I look at animal bones recovered from archaeological sites. Oh. You know, um, animal bones are recovered all the time, you know, the remains of past meals, essentially. And I identify them and I reconstruct those past meals. And I also reconstruct past human-animal relationships based on the evidence in the osteology. And so you're so interesting. Oh, but it's just oh, pause there a moment, yeah. Eric. So, <laughs> did you say you, you analyze meals like food? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people ate animals in the past and they cut, you know, they, they cut up their bodies and, and butchered them. And then you have piles and piles of bones that get discarded um, off to the side. And then we, by excavating those bones and by you know, they're all in broken up little pieces, but by identifying them to the species that they were, by looking at the butchery marks on them, by looking at the age the animals were when they died and the, the sex of the animal, you can reconstruct not just what people ate, but also entire husbandry practices, you know, where people are raising livestock for meat or for secondary products such as uh, wool or dairy and um, things like that. So you can, sure. you can tell a whole lot by just the animal. Oh, no, so interesting. I thought for a moment there you were analyzing what dogs had eaten, you know, um, oh, right. yeah. 10,000 years ago. But nevertheless, um, of course, this is, you know, fascinating stuff. And indeed, your pet cemetery work offers us also, you know, an opportunity to rediscover the past, but in a, in a different way. Yeah, so... <laughs> When I was first looking up at pet cemeteries, uh, I was actually interested in how people were dealing with um, or, or treating dead pets after, after they passed on. You know, were they just burying them in the back garden? Were they uh, cremating them? What, what were people doing with, with their animals? And I found out that the first public pet cemeteries um, were actually quite recent in, in terms of the grand scheme of things, the 19th century, late 19th century. And uh, it's a funny thing, archaeologists and historians for decades have always looked at human cemeteries as a source of information on the human past. Human cemeteries, you know, with the, the gravestone inscriptions and the designs of the gravestones tell us a lot about people's relationships with one another, people's, or, or sort of the socioeconomic status of various parts of the city or the town, all sorts of questions, people's attitudes towards death and the afterlife and religion. And when I looked at the pet cemetery um, 
or when I found out about the pet cemeteries, I realized nobody's actually looking at these gravestones. And I thought, well, why can't we record the information from the gravestones and ask ourselves, how have human-animal relationships changed through time? And do these cemeteries document some of that change? And what did you find? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I found that um, my hypothesis is correct. There's there's, um, loads of information recorded on these gravestones. And there's, if you look at a change in um, gravestone inscriptions over time, so I looked at a 100-year period in the UK, you find that people are first... um, commemorating uh, friends and companions and then eventually they start commemorating family members and people are first uh, hopeful that animals will that they will reunite with their animals in heaven but they're not quite explicit in saying so Um, and then fast forward through time and people are quite confident they are going to be reunited with pets in in a heaven and this has been discovered, you know, you, you analyse the amazing little cemetery in London in Hyde Park, which is a very old pet cemetery. So it kind of really reflected the complexities of the Victorian era, really. Yeah, the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery is actually the first public pet cemetery in the UK. And I think one of the earliest public pet cemeteries um, in the world. And it's, it's just a fascinating little site. It's hidden from the public. Um, it, it's and it has to be. It, it's so um, fragile. It's filled with um, tiny little headstones, um, almost all sort of toppling over because they've been there for so long. And um, you, it's in the corner. It's in Hyde Park in London, so it's you can sort of see it through the the fence, through the bushes if you peek along uh, Bayswater Road. Uh, anyways, there's over uh, 475 stones I counted, many of which, and I think there are many more um, that have been buried over time. And it's, it's special because, as you say, it's the oldest one in the UK. I've been to uh, the pet cemetery in Paris called the Cimetière des Chiens, where Rin Tin Tin, you know, the very famous legendary Rin Tin Tin of the 1920s, um, was laid to rest. And I'm not sure if that's about the same age. I think that one dates to about 1880 it was built. It's very grand. It's very Victorian. And um, that was extraordinary <laughs> that's all I could say yeah and you sent me those pictures I've always wanted to go to the the Paris cemetery and thank you so much for the the pictures of your trip um it's it looks like a fascinating cemetery it's very different from the London one and it's about the same time yeah it's about the same time but it's it's much bigger and, and unlike the London one it is now you know a, an attraction if you like a tourist attraction so you you pay I can't remember how much I paid to go in and it's um an amazing tranquil garden where lots of cats have taken up residence um, and they're fed, you know, feral stray cats. And um, yes, it was opened, I believe, by a bunch of intellectuals um, at that time in Paris who deeply loved their dogs and didn't want the fate of so many dogs to happen to their own, which was to be thrown into the River Seine. Mm. But, you know, it was the epitaph. Some, there are some big tombs there, big tombs. I, in the photos I sent you, hopefully mm. the scale of some of these tombs um, was revealed with heartbreaking uh, epitaphs that sum it all up, you know, as, as all um, our listeners who have lost a dog will know, you know, it is you know, arguably more painful to lose your dog than it is, you know, a human family member. Eric, can you, you know, validify this from <laughs> your research as a scientist? 
I think, I think one of the things that struck me the most recording all of these gravestone epitaphs was that the one constant through time was the evidence for the strength of that relationship between people and animals. Um, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable to see some of these Victorian epitaphs and, and more recent ones, how they speak to a very profound, the, the loss of a very profound relationship and an intense grieving process that, um, yeah, that, that's fairly constant through time and a grieving process that hasn't always been accepted by society. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the, 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 the key similarities between 19th century epitaphs and modern ones as well is, is you know, that the, the burial process and the commemoration process is very much a part of the grieving process. And people often feel uh, uncomfortable uh, expressing that process publicly in a society that doesn't necessarily understand why the, lo- uh, the, the, the loss of a, an animal pet or an animal friend, family member, uh, is, is the same or even greater than the loss of a, a human relative. But in Victorian times, you know, um, you do see metaphors um, on the the tombstones beginning to appear that do indicate that, you know, you will be reunited. That's right. Um, They they always hint at or or hope to reunite. So uh, one example would have been um, something like, uh, oh, to think we could meet again, it would lighten half my pain. Um, another one um, for Wee Little Bobbit, who died in 1901. And his epitaph expresses uh, a hope to reunite in the afterlife, which is something you commonly see in the Victorian era. And I'll, I'll read you his epitaph. It says, when our lonely lives are over and our spirits from this earth shall roam, we hope he'll be there waiting to give us a welcome home. Now, it's worth saying that in the 19th century, people were just, they weren't, there was a hope of reuniting in the afterlife. At least that's what they expressed on the headstones. If you fast forward to the mid 20th century, just sort of after World War II, you see headstones that are epitaphs that are more certain about reunion in the, life, in the afterlife. For example, um, God bless until we meet again. And you start seeing post-World War II as well, a lot more Christian symbolism. Uh, you, you basically saw none of it in the 19th century. And a reason for that, I think, is because it's not that people in the 19th century didn't believe their animals were going to heaven. It was that saying so was a lot more controversial at the time. And uh, there, there could have been some consequences, maybe vandalism of the, the headstones if you, were, um, if you weren't appropriate, so to speak. Um, wow. So. Because it was a time of change in the Victorian era. I mean, there was mm. a, a lot of campaigning to stop experimenting on animals for all their new science projects. As sure. Science became a thing, didn't it, in, in the Victorian era. So that's kind of conflicting with, mm. you know, the thoughts that animals and yourselves can't be reunited. For sure. The, the Victorian era was such a watershed in terms of human-dog relationships, as you know. I mean, it's, it's in terms of animal welfare, it's when we saw the appearance of the RSPCA, all these animal shelters, all these new laws dedicated to protecting the well-being of animals. Um, you also, but it's also at the same time where you had the development of dog breeding standards, which 
as we know, it was it was it was harmful to some to some breeds. Um, and you had these massive rabies scares and um, this push for science, which both of which sort of resulted in the harming of animals, either for scientific study, vivisection, or um, the the destruction of, of stray dogs for the fear of rabies. Um, yes. So it was, it, was a, it was a conflicting time, I think, for, for pet owners and, and in, in the Victorian period. Yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, the, the truth <laughs> mm. is, is spoken, um, even if it's unspoken on, on these headstones. Definitely, definitely. The, the, and the truth is that people were just um, at such, in such grief following the, the loss of their animals. Yes. Have you had a chance, Eric, to look at any of the um, specific tombs? I don't know if um, from my photos you can see, you know, the inscriptions on there. I mean, mm. some are in French, some are in, you know, English, as dogs from all over the world, have, um, including Rin Tin Tin, obviously, because he was American, have ended up in, in this uh, little spot. I have, yeah. Um, they were interesting. They, they, they sort of fit in with what I was observing in... Britain, which is, uh, they make reference to uh, pets as as pets or as friends, and not so much as as family members in the the nineteenth century, sort of early twentieth century. And then, as as you progress through time, you start seeing um, family surnames being added to the, the to the epitaphs or to the to the gravestones, rather, and. Um, the commemorator identifies themselves as, as mummy or daddy as opposed to mistress or uh, a proper name. Yes. So, you know, there is that, uh, well, uh, they're fur kids, you know, at mm. this point, which I guess is a relatively new thing, Eric. <laughs> it, it seems to be. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's undeniable. The, if, you, if you look at these gravestones sort of quantitatively, and you look at the instances of the words pet, companion, friend, and the words family, mummy, daddy, things like that, um, there is a clear trend where uh, the word pet sort of slowly begins to disappear through time and it's replaced by the word um, family or, or, or mummy, daddy. They're, they're not referred to as sons or daughters, but the parents are referred to as, as mummy and daddy. Yes, and that hope, you know, that there will be, you know, the chance to meet again. Mm, definitely. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny, see, or it's not funny, it's, it's interesting seeing the evolution of pet cemeteries through time. You know, you mentioned earlier um, how your, your own, uh, Molly, was it? Was, yes, Molly, was, yes. Was cremated. Um, yes. And that from the 1980s onwards, cremation became the sort of standard approach to, to caring for an animal after, after they've, they've passed on. And as a result, you see fewer people use pet cemeteries. Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't bury the ashes. They still can, but many um, choose to spread their, uh, their animals' ashes or even keep them around the house in a, in a nice urn, in a way keeping uh, their presence around the house Definitely, you know, and I think you can also have diamonds, fake diamonds made from the mm. ashes. I've thought about that. I've still got Molly's ashes just here in, in, in my bedroom in a silver, whatever, you know, you call it, container. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to know also how I'd feel about 
scattering them somewhere far from here, like like Paris, as much as I adore going back to Paris, um, particularly in these times, it's not possible. You know, it's it's it is that thing of keeping keeping them close. But there again, I know that her ashes would be safe there, and it would be a symbolic place to return and make a, an annual pilgrimage to Paris to, you know, feel her energy um, in in such a beautifully heavenly type garden mm. and one thing that's that's uh happening more and more is uh cemeteries or the cemeteries are opening up that are allowing for the first time human and animals being buried together either side really? by side or in the same grave yeah really because um, oh, that wasn't allowed i didn't know yeah, this it's, oh it's gosh within the last uh three four years in britain i think and same with the u.s um and they're they're Different jurisdictions have different rules. Um, some of them are quite, you know, some of the laws aren't quite well developed yet, and they've resulted in some unfortunate incidences. Um, I know a few states in the U.S. only allow animals to be buried with the humans if the burial occurs at the same time. So the idea being, you know, your your, your pet passes on, you cremate them, you keep the the ashes, and then when you die, you both get buried together. However, that's resulted in uh, one case that's been documented in, in the news of someone euthanizing their pets ahead of time in order to be uh, buried together. Ooh. Um, but there are, there are uh, places <laughs> in, in the UK um, that allow for, for both to, to, to sort of have a, a whole family plot, if you will. And that yes. whole family includes members of, of other species. Yeah, um, I think that's really interesting to know, actually. But, um, you know, a downside as well, I know the Paris Cemetery, um, it, it hit the press, actually, after I'd, I'd visited. <laughs> it was awful. Some grave robbers um, heard mm. that uh, a poodle buried there had been buried with a diamond collar. And, um, yeah, you got it. They, uh, they broke in and the collar was there and they, they stole it. That's so bad, isn't it? Wow. I mean, how can people do these sorts of things? I think grave robbing has been around for a long time. <laughs> Human cemeteries and I guess pet cemeteries are no, no exception, which is sad. I know. I suppose look at I suppose look at the Egyptians. I, I don't know. And the <laughs> Tutankhamun, I, you know, I, you know, that was... Yeah, similar but different, I suppose. Mm. Although, no, I suppose this segues into actually talking particularly about the Egyptians because of their reverence to animals. And, of course, the god Anubis, he was a dog, right? I think so. You know, I'm not very familiar with my Egyptian mythology, I'm afraid. Oh, no, but uh, thinking of, you know, graves in general. And um, I know animals were mummified uh, by the Egyptians, which, you know, is also testament that uh, I guess we... You understand that dogs are really man's best friend, Eric. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, in terms of, from an archaeological perspective, the Egyptian pet cemeteries are something else as well, um, which you don't really see again. So you have pet cemeteries in ancient Egypt and you have some in other parts of the world. But here in Britain, you know, you've had animal burials here and there over time um, from the Romans through to, uh, you know, current period. But... None of them were given um, cemeteries really until the 19th century, which is which is fascinating to me that that animals were being buried but not commemorated until relatively recently. It seems strange at first, but actually, humans weren't given individual gravestones until uh, 
quite late 18th century, early 19th century as well. So it's actually kind of fitting in with our commemorative practices for, for people as well. They're not too far behind the dogs. That's interesting. And Eric, tell me, you know, are you a dog lover? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I love dogs. I've always wanted a dog, but I've never had one of, of my own. I couldn't growing up. My, my mother was very allergic and uh, we, we just didn't have the, the opportunity to have one. And then as an adult, um, I moved around way too much and it would just be unfair uh, on me and a, and a dog to, to own one. At the moment, but this can all change, Eric. You this know. can all change. That, that's the plan um, when things settle down to, uh, to have a dog. And what, what's your next project that you're working on? Does it involve dogs? Yeah, so I'm looking at the... I, I'm continuing with this pet cemetery work. Uh, I want to go a bit further into time and look at um, other pet cemeteries in the 19th century that uh, appear before the first public pet cemeteries. They're those that appear in sort of the country homes and the, the, the aristocratic households and on their estates. Um, and I'd like to document those pet cemeteries to see how they influ influence or how they're tied to the, the modern pet cemetery movement. And I'd also, I, I'm also very fascinated by material culture related to the memory of, of pets and animals. So not just the gravestones, but the urns um, in which ashes are put in or the, the collars and the, the, the clothes that are, are kept or the, the mementos that are kept. Um, following their, their death. Um, and in the 19th century, uh, you know, speaking of keeping uh, presents around the house, one, one thing that if you could afford it, you could do was um, to taxidermy your, mm. your dog and, and keep the taxidermy around the house. Do you know, interestingly, Eric, um, a friend of mine uh, now in the very present moment is, gosh, getting his Pomeranian stuffed. Um, near where I live in Hackney, well, in Islington, there is a very famous taxidermist, funnily enough, called Get Stuffed on the Essex Road in Islington. Um, I've known it ever since I've moved to London. Um, not allowed in there, but, you know, you can look in the window. And it is one of those extraordinary things because in Victorian times, it was considered really normal, wasn't it, to stuff things? Definitely. Um, taxidermy was, was an art, uh, not, not just for, for remembering animals, but um, for creating, um, you know, uh, montages or displays of, of, of various wild scenes, if you will, also for, for, for game trophy hunting, but, um, and, and sort of scientific record keeping as well. You know, Charles Darwin, mm. back loads of species um, from the Galapagos and, and they're all taxidermied in, in, in a collection, sort of a... It's interesting. And I, actually have learned about the process by um, going along with my friend. And I've learned that um, little Amber won't be ready, as it were, for six months. It takes this long to perfect mm. her. And also something I didn't know was that you actually, it might sound a bit, you know, a bit weird, you get the body back. <laughs> um, so you can still cremate and you can still bury even. But what you have is this tribute i suppose that is just their skin yeah and it, what, what interests me sort of in terms of the 19th century taxidermy is you can't the the, the taxidermist and the the person commissioning the, the taxidermy could potentially decide to permanently you know not just change the body but position the body in a way that they want their dog to be remembered 
Yes, um, exactly. This is what uh, my friend's done. Um, we took photographs and discussed it with the taxidermist as to what would be the most appropriate. So Amber will be lying at the top of the stairs, um, as she always would. Right, in, in, a, in a sleeping position. Mm, mm, with her head up, looking okay. like she's just, um, like he's just walked up the stairs. And she's going to be lying kind of um, between the hall and the bedroom, as she always would do, you know, ready mm. to go to bed. Yes, yes, this is um, a total modern case, actually, Eric. That's fascinating. Um, <laughs> it, it, so the, the ones I've seen, many of the ones I've seen are either... Um, doing an action like that, that they, they're, they're remembered for, maybe standing guard or, or watching over. Others are um, curled up in a, in a ball, sort of sleeping. And it, it brings to mind the, the sleep metaphor of death, mm. uh, which I observed in the pet cemeteries, um, all of the pet cemeteries, uh, which is a very Victorian thing. So in the Victorian era, people started uh, using the metaphor of sleep to represent death. Uh, essentially, death was uh, asleep, and we still use that metaphor today. You know, rest in peace, here lies so and so. Yeah. And this was the same for pets. Uh, there was one uh, epitaph that read, uh, "We are only for two dogs." I think it was uh, Snap and Peter, and the epitaph read, uh, "We are only sleeping, master." And the not only is the metaphor of sleep used in the epitaphs, but the design of the gravestones themselves. Right? You have a a headstone which made to look like a headboard and then you have a sort of a, a curb outlining the the shape of the plot but also forming you know the shape of a bed and then a, a footstone or look like a like a a footboard mm, um, yes so the the death the sleep metaphor is actually quite interesting as well because it the the metaphor suggests an impermanence to death there, there's going to be a reawakening and it's sort of a way to suggest there is a reunion without explicitly stating so. Yes, it's definitely. It's a very comforting notion, isn't it? It is a very comforting notion, you know. Um, and I guess, you know, it helps with the really difficult, you know, psychology behind grief, you know, mm. um, that is something we discussed in an episode with a psychiatrist recently, actually, Eric, who's, but it's to do with loss of the attachment that, mm. you know, you just cannot replace. It is deep pain <laughs> and, and everyone handles it in, in, in a different way. Definitely. And you see that in the gravestones. It's, you know, some of them, I've seen a few where the epitaph said, you can never be replaced or you will never be replaced. And others are just, just so um, gushing in their, their remembrance. Um, can I read a few more epitaphs? Yes, why not? Yes, please. These are some of the, the more emotional ones. Um, Jane, who was uh, a lovely little Blenheim, uh, she, her epitaph wrote, uh, brought sunshine into our lives, but took it away with her. And then when Chum passed away in 1900, um, their owners wrote, so lonely without my doggy. There was another, I don't have the name here, but uh, was this is the epitaph. He was the most intelligent, faithful, gentle, sweet-tempered, and affectionate dog that ever lived. Another reads, he asked for so little and gave so much. Yes, yes. yes. I think, you know, <laughs> we know, don't we? <laughs> Things actually haven't changed since 1900 and indeed since probably long before that. <laughs> 
Mm, indeed. Oh, Eric, please stay in touch about um, any more findings and especially about the taxidermy aspect as well, won't you? I'd love to. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, it was very interesting. I did enjoy talking about my visit to the Paris Cemetery. It's well worth a visit. So I hope you all enjoyed it too. And if you did, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, as we're on all the platforms. And it really does help other dog lovers find us. Thanks, of course, to Eric Torgny. And all his details are listed in the show notes. Thanks to Mike Hansen, my brilliant patient producer at Pod People Productions, for all the music and production as ever. And follow them at Pod People UK. For more about me, I'm on at Anna Webb Dogs, or visit my new website, annaweb.co.uk, where you can book training sessions, read my blogs, and even visit my shop, where very soon I'm going to be selling some key products that I truly endorse. We'll be back in your feed next Sunday for another episode of The Dog's Life with Anna Webb. So, bye for now. Pod people.